Hi, everyone, and welcome to Crime Science. In this podcast, we explore the science of crime and the practical application of this science for loss prevention and asset protection practitioners, as well as other professionals. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Crime Science, the podcast. This is the latest in our weekly update series, uh, joined by Tony D'Onofrio and Tom Meehan, our producer, Diego Rodriguez, associate producer, Wilson Gamarino. And we're just going to talk a little bit about what's going on around the world um, I think many of us have seen, and, and some of you know, we had been contacted by Lowe's Home Improvement. Their uh, innovation team working with asset protection had uh, long been working on it, a way that they could better protect products uh, and do it cost effectively. They're, the solution set that they've uh, worked on and designed and seems to be ready for some field testing. I believe they're working in 10 to 12 stores right now on it is a benefit denial technology. Many of you know that's what here at the LPRC and in the situational crime prevention uh, research literature from in the criminology journals and so on is referred to as um, part of the situational crime prevention matrix and, and it's benefit denial, denial of benefits or rewards for the would-be uh, criminal offender uh, to reduce their likelihood of victimizing or harming another person or place because it won't be worth it. They're, they're not going to get what or as much of what they'd like to get. So in the case of Operation Unlock, uh, it's a benefit denial technology that uh, allows for point of sale activation of uh, a device, in this case, an electronic device, uh, and they're using it right now on cordless electric drills or other tools. Um, And so uh, now what they're doing is trying to understand all the mechanisms, mechanics needed just to operate in a handful of stores and then at scale. There are manufacturing issues that they're sure they're working through, uh, some testing and validation, uh, legal structures and things like that. Uh, our understanding is that they would like to make this technology available uh, without real charge to anyone um, and so on. So we'll all stay tuned and, and understand. Uh, I was uh, fortunate to participate in a uh, a dinner, uh, and we've mentioned this before, but a dinner in New York City uh, on that Monday evening of the, New York, of the uh, NRF big show, um, and that uh, was very well attended, a lot of discussion. We had speakers uh, across the spectrum of legislation uh, and legislators and, and uh, lobbyists to technologists, leading technologists, again, from Lowe's and Walmart. Um, and practitioners, APLP practitioners, uh, government officials, and uh, law enforcement executives and beyond, trying to understand how we can all together better tackle some of the issues out there. So we applaud this effort and and many other efforts uh, out there to better reduce crime and loss attempts. And if somebody believes it's just too risky, that mode of action, I'm likely to get caught here, uh, think uh, visible cameras, uh, electronic tag systems, alarms, things like that, uh, active, uh, aware alert, uh, you know, customer service, uh, radios, things like that. They're all designed or examples of trying to increase the perceived risk of detection, uh, detention or apprehension, of course, some kind of sanction, formal or informal sanctioning. Uh, they're also, we all have talked about the other, another mode of action, a primary mode, of action would be to make things uh, like theft in this case more difficult. Uh, it's going to take too long, require special information, codes, passwords, um, keys. Um, it's going to require uh, something. It's going to take too long 
uh, and things like that, or it might be dangerous uh, to attempt. So uh, that mode of action is pretty pretty key. But going back to uh, denial of benefits, um, whether it's point of sale activation uh, or it's ink or dye tags, um, mechanical clamps, um, removing stereo fronts and vehicles and things like that, there are a lot of ways that we can uh, make crime attempts less desirable and therefore make people and places a lot safer. So um, it, one thing I want to mention, too, is that uh, we're going to be hosting in Gainesville at the behest of the International Council of Shopping Centers, ICSC, uh, a gathering, a special summit uh, that we're going to be working on uh, on March 8th in Gainesville with a reception on the evening of the 7th here that Tuesday. And we've got uh, multiple associations that ICSC and others have invited to come in. Uh, the LPRC, is our role is to, to host, uh, to provide maybe some of our insights into an overarching anti-crime strategy. The, the session itself or the event, the summit is called the Violent and, um, excuse me, the Organized and Violent Retail Crime Summit. Uh, right now, in addition to ICSC, we have the National Retail Federation, NRF confirm, the uh, RELA, Retail Industry Leaders Association confirm, FMI, or the Food Marketing Institute, this is the supermarket and grocery uh, group, trade or industry group uh, coming in. Um, we've also got ASIS, American Society Industrial Security, as is uh, Retail Committee represented, CLEAR, the Coalition of Law Enforcement and Retail or Retailing. Uh, coming in for that. Um, we've got the LP Foundation coming in here for that. Um, and and uh, Department of Homeland Security, uh, HSI, Homeland Security Investigations, that are coordinating um, across ORC groups and, and so forth, and many more coming in. So this will be an interesting summit focused on looking at what's, what's an overarching co uh, co collaborative or cooperative strategy. What legislative gaps and needs are? We know that RELA and others have successfully now gotten the INFORM Act uh, into law uh, federally. Uh, there's some skepticism, I understand, from those involved as to how well and how long it will take to actually uh, execute on that. But that's the way it is with any, any new effort or initiative is now how do we make this work in the real world? How do we get buy-in and commitment, execution? How do we sustain that? How do we adapt and adjust? Uh, what we're trying to do uh, to the ever-changing criminal uh, horde out there, if you will. So we'll talk about other gaps and opportunities legislatively. Uh, I know RELA is pushing an initiative that's well-founded as far as getting together uh, the district attorneys, the prosecutors, because here in the state of Florida, they're called state attorneys or in some states, state's attorneys and so on. So to get the prosecutors at the state and federal levels to much better understand organized retail crime and all the harm created by that, as well as high-rate, high-impact offenders that aren't necessarily organized or part of an organized group, but are uh, high-impact uh, offenders. So we're going to look at that, discuss some of the good efforts that are underway. Are there ways that others can support? Uh, what are good lanes for people to move in? I know at the LPRC, our role is is and always has been to be more of a, a think tank and, of course, a research center uh, for the retail industry and for law enforcement, others trying to reduce theft, fraud, and violence. Um, and so that's the lane that we believe we should stay in. Uh, but we can, we look at things like what is a 
a grand strategy. What does that look like legislatively uh, from an enforcement standpoint, point, excuse me, but also from a preventative standpoint, which is what we talk about here every week and everything we, we do in our labs every day and in the field. And that is how do we convince people not to initiate or progress a harmful act like theft, fraud or violence, I mean, any social behavior. Um, so what does that look like? But also those that are high impact offenders, what do we do to better uh, try and convince them to not reoffend, re-victimize a place, um, uh, re-harm somebody or another place? Uh, or uh, how do we better neutralize that threat? Maybe they need to be incarcerated, taken out of circulation so that they can. Um, we're going to be looking at research opportunities that these retail industry groups would like to see. We'll have some retailer practitioners. We'll have some mall security practitioners uh in here as well, because again, we want to look at individual place protection uh, in enhancing self-protection. We want to look at, though, also tying together uh, retailers or in other partners together, uh, as we've talked about before with our East Side uh, Safer Places Lab initiative, looking at eight, at least eight retail companies, stores in, a, in this particular area. How do we connect them and connect them with the Gainesville Police Department to work more effectively at prevention and better handling and management and recovery, um, and and uh, and then better evidence or forensic activity, so that we can put the high impact offenders uh, out of business, so they can't keep uh, harming and hurting others, um, as well as in the mall environment, whether an enclosed mall, like we'll be doing on the west side, Safer Places Lab initiative, um, working with Brookfield Properties and their retail tenants, both large and small. Um, and then in open mall environments as well. So those uh, strip centers, malls, uh, co-located stores, uh, how do we get better individual place and collaborative or collective place? These will all be things we're looking at because the LP Foundation's there. They lead training and certification efforts in this in this space. Uh, are there things that could be done or need to be done or don't to enhance organized retail crime training for practitioners? in both loss venture asset protection and law enforcement uh, training packets that might be needed uh, per the RELA uh, prosecutor initiative, DA initiative, uh, to help them better recognize and prosecute, successfully prosecute um, some of the ORC or high impact offenders and things like that. So looking at legislation, uh, tactics uh, and strategies and tactics, looking at uh, that prosecution, enforcement, and so forth, uh, and then looking at training opportunities and development. So kind of having a comprehensive look. So we're excited about that upcoming March 7th and 8th summit. Um, it's going to be a fairly intimate group. It was starting out as about 20. Now it could be as many as 90. Um, but we're trying to maintain quality so that some good outcomes happen, and that could be more coordinated uh, strategy as far as lobbying um, the retailer and mall or center operators and their security tech uh, and their tech people, that there's more alignment. Um, and then the same thing with law enforcement and prosecutors. So stay tuned on that. Um, what we'll do is we know we've got an upcoming uh, Integrate Summit uh, coming up here. This is, again, designed to help us better learn how to put on these type of events where we've got tabletops and war game exercises, if you will, um, that are coming out of real world uh, scenarios and leveraging multiple, sometimes dozens and dozens of technologies, integrating them together for effect. Um, we're excited. Uh, it looks like right now we'll be between 40 and 45. I think we're about 45. Um, 
registered asset protection and LP uh, executives representing well over 30 retail corporations. Um, we've only got a handful of solution partners and those that are helping us actually operate some of the tech uh, and, and, and serve as sort of advisors in some of the more sophisticated or complex components of the exercise itself. Um, and then, of course, our uh, our sponsors from the Innovate Advisory Panel that are uh, work uh, weekend and week out, month in and month out, year round with uh, 30 major retailers, their innovation people and our team. Um, and they also provide critical resources, as we've talked about before, to grow our research capability, both uh, data and uh, criminological scientists, the venues that we work in, the technologies we use, uh, and the ability to move around, travel, and conduct real-world research in very rigorous evaluations as well. Um, so that's going to – we're excited about it. The Ignite portion of this is the winter planning meeting, is said, as we've said before. Now you're looking at uh, the committees that we've got coming in, and they'll be – uh, doing breakouts and understanding ways to help us get better operationally from a recruiting and what we call um, team building exercises and things like that. Uh, our smart growth initiative, uh, we don't want to grow too large. We don't want too many corporations. We're now over 200 members of the LPRC community. We, uh, Our members don't want to grow a whole lot larger now. Uh, we Nobody wants a mob scene. Uh, they want to get things done, make things happen maintain quality and rigor um, and things like that. So a lot of those strategic discussions and and next steps will be lined out there. Um, and we're excited about that as well as some of the research focus uh, and what we're doing for individual issues, as well as looking uh, broader with our working groups, our events, you know, our labs and the initiatives we're doing out in the wild or out in the field. So enough on what LPRC is up to um, other than uh, again, we've got our LPRC Supply Chain Protection Summit coming up, as well as our LPRC Violent Crime Summit coming up. Um, go to lpresearch.org, if you will, to find out more information on our events, how to get involved in the LPRC community, or more involved if you're a member, how to engage here at our labs, how to go out and participate in our summits and on our calls and on FusionNet during critical incidents and things like that. So with no further ado, let me turn this over to Tony D'Onofrio. Tony, take it away. Thank you, Reed. Uh, let me start this week with some interesting news from Amazon as published in Supermarket News. Amazon just announced that it is pausing the rollout of, of Amazon Fresh retail stores while it reevaluates the concept's economics. The company has, has assessed that its portfolio of Amazon Fresh and Amazon Go stores and has decided to exit some of those stores uh, due to low growth potential. Amazon currently has 44 Amazon Fresh locations and 28 Amazon Go stores in the United States. Both the Fresh stores, which are more like traditional supermarkets, and the Go stores, which are cashierless convenience stores, have been widely considered a potential opportunity for the e-commerce giant to disrupt the traditional retail grocery space. The company, interestingly enough, also took a $720 million impairment charge in the fourth quarter related to property equipment and operating leases at its physical stores. While it's rethinking the Amazon Go Fresh and Amazon Go concept, Amazon's Whole Food banner market. It actually continues to do well and it's made progress toward profitability in the past year. 
for the fiscal year that ended on December 31st, Amazon reported that sales at its physical stores increased about 11% over a year ago uh, to about $19 billion. That figure does not include uh, orders placed online for pickup and delivery. Uh, everyone needs to remember that grocery is a lower margin business and it's great to have all this, all this technology and remember all the hype with Amazon Go stores when they open. But like everything else, in the end, uh, you have to make money and the economies need to work. So it's interesting that Amazon is reassessing what to do with all those high-tech stores going forward. And this follows actually closing some of the other formats that they were doing in physical stores. So it'd be interesting to see where Amazon goes next. And let me conclude this week with a very uh, important uh, new report. And this important this report is very important here at the Loss Prevention Research Council. It's, fr it's from the United States Secret Service and it analyzes mass attacks in the United States. Um, this is really a first of its kind. Uh, and it looked at trends of 173 mass attacks that took place in the years between 2016 and 2020. Among the findings as summarized by National Public Radio, first let's look at the location of these attacks. Again, very dear to the Loss Prevention Research Council. Most of the attacks took place in a variety of public and semi-public spaces across 37 states and Washington, D.C. The most common locations for the attacks were businesses, including restaurants and retail. What about weapons? Uh, 126 of the attacks, or 73%, involved the use of one or more firearms. In nearly a quarter of the attacks involving firearms, at least one of the firearms was acquired illegally by the attacker. Who are these people? What are the demographics? Well, very interesting and maybe not surprising, 96% of the attackers are male. Then uh, this, this finding consistent with previous analysis of mass attacks, 57% were white and 34% were black. What about criminal history? 64% had a prior criminal history, not including minor traffic violation, 41% of the attacks were found to have a history of domestic violence, but only 16% of those individuals faced domestic violence charges. Did they have an online presence? Interesting that a majority of the attackers had an identified presence online and nearly a quarter were found to have conveyed concerning communications such as threats and posts about suicidal ideations, previous mass shooting, violent content, and hatred towards a specific ethnic group. Were they stressed? What was stressing them? Nearly all of the attackers experienced at least one significant life stressor within the five years of the attacks, most of which, interesting, were issues with family and romantic relationships. 20% of the attackers experienced some kind of childhood trauma, including physical or sexual abuse, entering foster care, living in a refugee camp, or death of a parent. And what about financial and housing? Where, where, how did that impact them? With 60, 72% of the attackers experienced a financial stressors sometime before the attack and over half experienced it within five years. The report also describes some financial stressors such as bankruptcy, eviction, foreclosures, and loss of income. 39% of the attackers also experienced unstable housing within 20 years of the attacks, including homelessness and impending evictions. 
interesting that this report does provide some operational implications that should be considered when developing community violence prevention programs. And I'm going to list them because these are important. Uh, communities must encourage and facilitate bystander reporting and be prepared to respond when reports of concerns are, are received. Communities should uh, uh, not wait for a direct or specific threat before taking an action. Individuals displaying an unusual interest in violent topics, especially past attackers, should elicit concern, concerns. Businesses should consider establishing workplace violence prevention programs to identify, assess, and intervene with current employees, former employees, and customers who may pose a risk of violence. Public safety, uh, school, workplaces, and community service professionals should consider strategies for resolving interpersonal grievances. Individuals tasked with community violence prevention must understand the impact of violent and hateful threat rhetoric while protecting the constitutional rights to free speech. Misogyny and domestic violence deserves increased attention from those tasked with mass violence prevention. Unlike uh, online platforms may be utilized by individuals to make violent communication and to share violent rhetoric and ideas. Individual sharing final communication or engaging in other final acts may warrant immediate in intervention. Community violence prevention efforts require identifying and promoting appropriate resources for individuals who are managing stressful life circumstances, experiencing mental health issues or facing a personal crisis. And finally, mass shootings have been perpetrated by those who were legally prohibited from possessing firearms. And so the report concludes that the background and behaviors of the attackers demonstrate a continued need for public safety resources to be directed towards addressing threatening behavior, stalking, harassment, domestic violence, violent extremism, extremism and violence in general. The findings further emphasize the increased need for community resources to address mental health needs, social isolation, substance abuse, and individuals in crisis. Really interesting report. I urge everybody to read it. It's actually available also on my website if you want to see it, um, but research it. It's an important topic here at the Loss Prevention Research Council. I know we have a violence group, but this is an issue throughout society and we all need to work together to actually get better in terms of addressing this major, major concern that is plaguing uh, the United States. So with that, let me turn it over to Tom. Well, thank you, Tony, and thank you, Reed. Uh, wanted to start off with the Chinese surveillance balloon. Uh, I'm sure everybody by now has heard or read the news about the Chinese surveillance balloon uh, that entered U.S. airspace over Alaska, traveled uh, all over the country, and was shot down eventually in the Carolinas. Kind of the interesting part here, and this is a, a developing story, as I'm sure everybody's aware. We're learning about it. Uh, day by day through the media. But if you read some of the intelligence briefs, um, the first kind of interesting point of view is that this is the fourth um, balloon, potentially the fifth. So there's two different kind of reports out there. And I think some of this um, is the way the reports are written. Uh, three of these surveillance balloons were in U.S. airspace. Uh, one uh, several years ago, um, and then an additional one this year. And so what does that mean? Well, that's kind of the challenge. The Chinese government has acknowledged that it is their balloon, 
but basically the narrative has changed a little bit. It started out with this was a civilian manned um, research balloon that fell off course and then it was a weather balloon and there was a whole bunch of different things here. It's, uh, the balloon itself is, is a very sophisticated device. Uh, it, it can travel above 65,000 feet, has rudders and propellers so it is able to move. And uh, for lack of uh, better words, it's, it's, it, 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 it can accomplish the same as a, a satellite can, just with a, a little bit different of a range. It's also important to note that you may not have heard about this, but on the global newswire, uh, the high-altitude Chinese surveillance balloons have also been spotted in Japan, India, and the Philippines. I think this is um, kind of one of those things that continues uh, to develop. but. Um, the next step is what what will happen you know now that we've had we've we've shot this balloon down what does that mean for the china and us relations which were somewhat tense in the past and i think this has been kind of a common theme for several years what occurs with these these types of incidences it's also important to note that um, it isn't uncommon to have um, other types of surveillance, planes, drones, uh, come into U.S. territory, uh, generally in the waters. Uh, it's not uncommon on the Pacific coast, as well as in uh, the northern part of Alaska, to have surveillance uh, uh, planes or drones from other countries come around. This is something that's been going on for a very long time. They, the U.S. government is looking and trying to collect pieces of this balloon. They, they've uh, they basically cordoned, cordoned off um, a pretty large area over the water um, and are working at getting the debris. They've already collected some of it. And we're in this uh, kind of wait-and-see phase of what the government will, if anything, do um, from the Chinese government standpoint. They've said... Uh, in plain English, that there will be consequences for shooting the balloon down. And um, they're using very neutral language um, in the sense of, you know, uh, things like this is, you know, not appropriate based on international law. So they're not, they're not making direct threats, but they are definitely um, insinuating that something will apply. So it's something to definitely keep an eye on. Uh, also, kind of in global geopolitical uh, news, uh, there's been a lot of chatter about Russia making a very strong offensive play in the Ukraine. Um, there is a lot of intelligence data to support that Russia will take another strong approach, uh, really in symbolic, uh, symbolic approach versus you know a strategic or military. Uh, initiative that is uh, this is more symbolic in the sense that they want to capture land or areas that they didn't they lost in the past and um, there is a lot of geopolitical chatter uh, through uh, the cooperation with Iran and Iran providing uh, Russia with drones and uh, that are high speed drones so there's the geopolitical climate today is uh, very, very um, stressed, if you will, and there's a, certainly a lot of information out there, and there's also a lot of misinformation. So why am I talking to, the, to this today on the podcast is because there is a tremendous amount of misinformation. There's a tremendous amount of um, 
fear mongering of what that means, what this could mean for the United States. And you know, while I, I am, I'm just uh, delivering the news, if you will, we don't really know. Uh, one of the things that we do know is uh, COVID has taught us a lot of things about uh, supply chain and fragility in the supply chain. So something as retailers uh, to look for is look for what, if any, impact could occur in the supply chain world based on some of these things that occur. Uh, I'm not uh, 100% sure that you will see uh, direct impacts, but we do see indirect impacts. We know that uh, specifically with China, uh, there's still a large percentage of chips that are manufactured in China, which means a lot of folks here who are listening uh, have that use electronic components definitely have an impact. Additionally, we know that um, the that that the region is still. Uh, a common place for textiles and, and some apparel um, manufacturing. So just something to keep an eye on. We'll certainly keep everybody apprised of the situation and we'll go kind of through there uh, from that standpoint. Another thing, just wanted to talk kind of into the cybersecurity space. There has been um, a lot of news around different types of ransomware attacks that are coming. And I think the good thing here is we, we continue to see when we see these attacks and some of these events that occur, we also see reactions from developed governments. So uh, that continues to be a great kind of um, uh, move forward for all of us listening that the, the bad guys are seeing that the good guys will see these through these very in, intense and sometimes extremely complicated um, type of investigations. And we are, as a government, reacting to them. Um, I am, I had the opportunity and I am actually at, at a conference today and uh, yesterday for aerospace and um, you know, one of the, the divisions at Control Tech does RFID for aerospace, that's why I'm there. And uh, there is a tremendous amount of talk and uh, this is uh, very similar to NRF Protect or NRF Big Show, I apologize, that's why I wanted to bring it up. But just a tremendous amount of talk about artificial intelligence, machine, machine learning, Automation, and while I would say that you you have, you know, polarizing differences between aerospace and retail, some of the challenges are um, similar in the technology implementation. So I found it very interesting and intriguing that uh, some of the sessions were really about innovation and managing um, customer experience uh, and uh, sustainability. So very very. Um, very, very interesting from a technology perspective to see the parallels. Also, um, organizations similar to the LPRC in that space. So I, I thought that that would warrant a little bit of conversation because I thought it was uh, so eerily similar that it, it, it made sense to, to talk about it. Um, we also are seeing an uptick uh, through some of the social media and active intelligence gathering channels uh, around unrest. I think it's uh, we're at this really interesting kind of challenging state of when we're looking for events occurring that you have folks that use social media as an outlet um, to some, just to talk about things and sometimes the conversations become heated and there are comments about potentially violent exchanges that are sometimes, again, just an outlet to express um, how uh, someone feels emotionally about what occurs. So I think 
Um, we'll continue to monitor that, uh, activate the fusion net as we see needed. Um, I do know that uh, during uh, LPRC Ignite at the end of the month in February, we're doing a tabletop exercise, uh, which is an, 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 it will be an active tabletop exercise where we talk about left a bang and right a bang and during an event and how to react. Um, and I think some of this will come up in that play is how do you validate, how do you sift through active intelligence data? Um, and I think uh, this is a great exercise, so stay tuned on that. And But you know, at a very, very high level, one of the things to really talk about is it has a lot to do with, um, you know, the planning uh, and, and how you will uh, act when something occurs. And then last but certainly not least, I think we've talked about it a few times, chat GPT has been all over the news. And what, what it is is it's the 3.5 uh, version uh, or four, version pseudo 4 of of. OpenAI's uh, artificial intelligence platform. I think I wanted to spend just a couple minutes on this because it's it's come up quite a bit in different meetings with uh, folks that I've met with at the NRF uh, big show about this being new. And first, uh, first probably by uh, you heard me kind of allude to three point five or pseudo four. It's it's not new. It's actually um, just that it was new made available to the masses. It's been in the works for several years. Um, it is not the only uh, modern AI, um, developed large language model, and that's what I'm going to talk a little bit about and kind of some of the news around it. Uh, but it certainly was the first that people uh, had you know, free access to to see. A couple caveats with uh, the chat GPT that you've probably come to know because you can go test it is, one, it, it is a a large language model. So what it does is it uh, basically has a lot of different um, words, several billion words and phrases. It, it pulls information through some of the common search engines. And then it, it is more of a predictive model than anything else, where when you ask it a question, it uses that large language model to anticipate what you're, what you're looking for it to say. It's, it's fairly accurate. I think it's, it's important to note that the data is only updated to 2021, so if you're using it, keep that in mind. Uh, one of the great things about this is it's really opened the eyes to, um, I think, what, an, what I would say is the consumer or average person of the availability uh, that, that uh, large language models offer. You also hear a term called generative AI, and I, I'm going to simplify this. Generative AI is, is exactly what it says. It's when artificial intelligence is used to generate an answer. You also will see that with images. Today, I'm not going to really talk about image in generative. I want to really focus on chat GBT because there were some announcements last week, and much like probably we all expected, um, Google, and I think we definitely talked about this in the podcast very early on, um, so I feel like we were ahead of the curve, uh, as we are a lot of times, released BARD, which is Google's version. And uh, this is something where I think uh, Google has uh, said in, in not so direct terms, but something we reported here on the, on the podcast was ChatGPT is, is, is uh, from a functional perspective, a big risk to Google because it shows the capacity of a large language model and how it could be used in a search engine. So... Uh, Google made an announcement this earlier this week saying that you know their version of a large language model is out and about. So we'll see a lot of this. This is great uh, for for everybody here listening. This really helps us understand what's going on. And when I say Google announced, it didn't actually 
um, release it to the wild yet. Um, but what this really does is it helps all of us, everybody listening here, understand what is capable, but also I think brings us to the next era of artificial intelligence. I wrote an article about the NRF Big Show and I talked about this kind of for years, and we, we've talked about this at the Loss Prevention Research Council, you know, what the, the AI versus ML implication is. So artificial intelligence is really a machine or a computer replicating a human behavior where machine learning takes that to the next level. And um, when we talk about large language models like chat GPT, really what it's doing is just a massive amount, uh, just an, uh, you know, a massive amount of language, words, and being able to predict what it is. So I think we'll continue to announce um, and, and talk through what this means for uh, the listener base. But um, as soon as BARD was announced on Monday of this week, you know, Microsoft went and, and talked about some of the things they're doing. And Microsoft really has invested a fair amount into OpenAI and the ChatGPT piece. So I think we're going to see uh, in the next 12 to 18 months a rapid acceleration of large language models, which allows better research at our fingertips, allows people to get more data. Uh, and when we talk about misinformation and misleading, the risk is that these models, uh, while they're extremely uh, cool and intelligent, still lack the ability to have human logic. So with that predictive model, if you play with ChatGPT, you can get a completely uh, different narrative. And so I did a little bit of experimenting early on with ChatGPT and asked it about uh, shoplifting and bail reform. And I asked the question three different ways and I got three very different answers all from different fact sets. Um, and the interesting part is it's not necessarily right or wrong. It's just, it's predicting based on what's out there. So definitely something to stay tuned to. I think it's probably been the most uh, interesting questions and topic that I've kind of faced in my many years of what um, I've heard. I think um, one of the, the, the biggest differences you should see with um, BARD versus ChatGPT at this stage is I think BARD uh, will be released with the, abil the ability um, to talk about recent events in the response, which is mass a massive difference. If you think about COVID and all the things that occurred, ChatGPT is limited to 2021, um, where BARD will not be, according to what, what I read. Again, I haven't seen it yet. Uh, it's also important to note that um, ChatGPT obviously, and OpenAI is obviously going to improve. So when we you know, some of the information isn't still already available. That's why I say chat GPT is three, version 3.5. I think it's really version four, a pseudo version four. So the next version theoretically would be um, with updated data. And with these models, um, if you've used chat GPT, your feedback influences how the model works. And this is, again, one of the risks with machine learning is that to do, because humans create these models and humans interact with these models, it could create, some, you know, our subconscious or group biases could change the way the model works. I think there's a tremendous amount of work out there to stop that from happening. But I think this is the topic that you know, I'll continue to monitor is the more you try to change a model to not have biases, 
um, in the past, the more the model actually has biases. So um, very, very interesting time for all of us. I spent a lot of time on it because if you haven't looked, go ahead and search chat uh, GPT or open API, uh, open AI. You, you can actually go on for free and use it. Very fun tool. Um, very, very interesting. And I think it will impact all of us uh, in the next few years on the way we do everything, um, both personally and professionally. And I, I think that um, at this stage of the game, there's not a big risk of human jobs being lost because of it, because of what it, it actually does. I think that's the number one question. Do I think people's jobs will get lost? I do think there will come a time when uh, large language models, if you are a, per, a news reporter that writes, you will have this uh, be able to do a lot of that for you. But I think in our space, um, the reality is it's only going to enhance the way we do things. I can see a time when um, researchers will use it to pull data much quicker and, and see reference points. I also can see it when um, where it's really good is for law and case law, trying to find things. It, it's phenomenal for those type of researches. So I encourage everybody to go check it out if you have any questions. Um, shoot us, shoot any of us a, a question. We'd love to get them here on, on the podcast. Uh, last, but certainly not least, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it because it's not something that is something we normally talk about or what we, the, something that I would say that I was an expert in, uh, but definitely a, a weather junkie, someone that follows it. And there was, you know, very, very unfortunate and really um, massive earthquakes in Turkey, you know, 7.9, and then extremely strong aftershocks. Uh, and we, you know, there are, there are some major fault lines in that area. So this is not, uh, we're, earthquakes are not uncommon, but this level of, of magnitude earthquake, I, I think has been several hundred years and the estimates are more than 20,000 dead. So uh, let's, let's keep everybody in our thoughts and, and continue to monitor it. But we do continue to see these, these um, very extreme weather events and, um, again, not uh, to, to go off topic here, but just one of the things is that be rest assured that here at the LPRC, if an event like that would occur um, in our area, uh, we would use all of our resources to help kind of monitor that situation. And that was actually when we designed the Fusion Net, Fusion Net um, for the people that were involved early. We started with weather events and civil unrest, and really we used weather as kind of the precursor, I actually recall being in uh, the lab, in the old lab space, um, taking the last flight out before a hurricane. I, I think uh, it was probably, gosh, probably four or five years ago now, and us actually activating the lab and, and helping push out information. And that's what the LPRC is all about. How do we get research to folks in our space to help them make better decisions based on facts? And with that, I will turn it back over to Reed. All right. Thanks so much, Tom, for all your insights. Tony, the same great information week in and week out. Uh, look forward, everybody out there, if you will, to uh, upcoming special guests. We're excited about that. Um, we've got criminologists. We've got practitioners. Uh, we've got tech uh, people that are out there leading the charge and helping us make things happen uh, and helping the uh, upping the quality, the execution and the outcomes of what we're all trying to do out there to safeguard the vulnerable. So yourselves, please stay in touch, stay safe. Thanks for listening to the Crime Science Podcast presented by the Loss Prevention Research Council. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can find more crime science episodes and valuable information at lpresearch.org. The content provided in the Crime Science Podcast is for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for legal, financial, or other advice. 
Views expressed by guests of the Crime Science Podcast are those of the authors and do not reflect the opinions or positions of the Loss Prevention Research Council. 